Well, how cool is it that we get to pray for our students and for our educators as they go back to school? And I want to encourage you throughout the school year, would you continue to pray for our students, for our kids, and, and for uh, the teachers in our congregation and really uh, around our nation and around the world as they engage in teaching in a different uh, format and a different way? Uh, just what an opportunity for us as the church to lift them up. Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles today to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, uh, the passage for today comes out of our reading, our Lectio Divina reading from this last week, and we're going to look at a couple of aspects of the life of Jesus. In fact, in this season, we're specifically looking at the life and ministry of Jesus and asking the question, who is God? It's our series that we've been in all year this year, really seeking to understand who God is, what, what makes God God, who, uh, what are the ways that he moves in the world, and how is he engaged with his creation, uh, and out of all of that, what does that mean for us? How are we called to live? How are we called to serve? How are we called to engage with each other in light of who God is? And so, again, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. The passages today will be uh, on the screen, and uh, they're also available in the notes section uh, and the online church platform. I want to talk today about power. Power. Power is a hot topic. Uh, not just now. It's been a, a subject of uh, controversy. It's been a subject of focus really for thousands of years, and we see that throughout Scripture. Uh, we understand this, that wars have been and continue to be waged over power. Economies have uh, been established and then ruined because of the desire to have more power, and lives have really been destroyed in the pursuit of power. We know this, our, our news cycles are filled with reports and accusations of those who abuse their power, maybe more now than, than really ever. We know this, that people use power in a number of ways. People will use power to control, to manipulate, to deceive, to satisfy their own greed, and to abuse others. The abuse of power is rampant. It runs rampant in our societies, in our governments, in our economies, in our businesses, in our sports, in our sports leagues, in our families, and yes, even in the church. That the inappropriate use of power is a problem. Yet we understand this, we see this in scripture, that the Bible talks about power a lot. And power is brought up in reference to the life of Jesus numerous times, and we see it all throughout the New Testament. You see, Scripture presents a very different picture of what power is. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, and he says this, This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. God has not given you uh, a spirit of fear and timidity. 
He's not given you a spirit of fear and timidity. And we love that. I love this passage, and, and rightfully so, that God has not given us a spirit of fear. Paul says to Timothy that God has given you a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. There's a lot here that we could unpack and we could spend a lot of time just in this passage, but I want to focus on this word power. When Paul says to Timothy, I've not given you, that God has not given you rather a spirit of fear or timidity, but he says he's giving you a spirit of power. What does that mean? What is Paul referencing? What does that power look like? It certainly can't be the power that we see that the world lusting after and pursuing. See, we need to have a clear understanding of what this word power means in Scripture. And this passage that, that, that we read out of 2 Timothy is, is super encouraging. It's a, it's a very encouraging word to us that Paul would say this to Timothy and by extension to us, that, that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear and timidity. But I want to walk in that spirit of power, but we have to do it appropriately. And so that's what we want to look at today. The best place to look at, to understand what correct power is, where the power of God is displayed appropriately and rightly, is in the life of Jesus. So we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 4, and we're going to cover a a fairly significant portion uh, of this chapter. And I want to give you a bit of an overview, a bit of a background of what leads up to what's happening in here, here in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 3, and we see it also in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus has come down to the Jordan River where, the, where, where John, uh, John the Baptist, is baptizing people. And it's in this place that Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And of course, John says to Jesus, I should be baptized by you. But Jesus then goes and John agrees to baptize him. And Jesus goes into the water and comes back up. And in that moment when he comes out of the water, it says that the heavens were opened and that the spirit descended on him in the form of a dove, the Holy Spirit. And that there was a voice from heaven that declared, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The voice of the Father, the voice of God, declaring this over the life of Jesus. It's, a, it's an amazing picture of what happened in that moment. I, I, I sometimes wonder, what does it look like for the heavens to open? And what did the people around that were watching, because there was a, a, a throng of people, a multitude of people that were there, what did they see? What did they experience? Did they all hear that voice? And we, we can assume that they did because uh, the writer here records those words. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So this is happening at the end of Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 3. But the Bible then tells us that Jesus is then led into the wilderness where he's tempted for the next 40 days. Let's read together out of Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. 
The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to you if I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered, answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning, uh, concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Imagine this, Jesus comes out of the water. He, he sees the heavens open, the, the power of the Holy Spirit in the form of the dove comes and rests upon him and he hears those words, this is my son, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the very next thing we read after this is that Jesus is led by that same Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It, it almost seems like those two don't fit. They're kind of incongruous. Yet Jesus walks in obedience to the Father. And, and all throughout his ministry, we hear Jesus saying this. I only do what the Father has told me to do. That Jesus was not just empowered by the Spirit, but he walked in obedience to the Father as the Spirit led him. And so he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And what he's confronted there in the temptation is, is the devil himself, Satan himself, using his power and his authority to try and sway and move Jesus in the direction he wants him to go. The, the text tells us that at the end of 40 days, he was hungry. And this is not some euphemism, it's not some allegory, it's not some, uh, you know, he's not referring to something else. He's physically hungry that Jesus in this desert place having no food for 40 days that that he he needed food he needed sustenance and we can kind of assume from that that he was weak if you've not eaten for 40 days I guarantee you you're going to be physically weak you're going to be tired you're going to be drained and 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 remember he's in the desert the sun's beating down on him there's probably not a lot of places for him to rest comfortably and so Jesus is physically at his lowest. And it's in this moment that the devil comes to him and begins to tempt him. He comes with this power. And, and, and listen to me, church, that the devil has power. It's not a righteous power, but he has power. And that Jesus in this moment, in this place, begins to take his stand against the power of the devil, the, the, the onslaught, the attack of the enemy. Listen to the three ways that Satan comes against Jesus. The first thing he does is he addresses the physical hunger that Jesus is experiencing. And he says to him, if you're the son of God, turn, turn this bread, uh, the stone rather, into bread. He says, God will take care of you. God will take care of you. So just go ahead and turn the stone into bread. There's an easy fix to the thing that you're going through. There's an easy way to, to deal with this. 
And so Jesus quotes scripture back at the devil in resisting him out of Deuteronomy 8.3, uh, which says this, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. Jesus points back to the, the journey of the Israelites in the Old Testament where they were in the wilderness. In fact, it's very close to the same place where Jesus would have been. And they had no food, and Jesus not only fed one person, but he fed over, well over a million people with the manna that came from heaven. And so the writer in Deuteronomy goes on and says that he took care of you. And then out of that, he says that we need to teach that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so Jesus hearkens back to this passage in Deuteronomy, and he uses it as, his, as the line in the sand, as the place where he takes his stand and he says, yeah, I'm hungry, but I will not give up my trust in God for a piece of bread. See, he addresses the trust issue. Satan addresses the trust. He comes against the trust that God, that Jesus would have in his father to take care of his most basic need, that to have, that being to have food. And he quotes scripture. He then addresses this issue of calling. He takes him to a high place and he shows him all of the land and he says, I will give you all of this. And, and Satan rightfully says, the devil says, I have the authority, I have the power to give it to you if you will fall down and worship me. See, the call on Jesus' life was to come to earth and to restore that which had been lost, to restore the kingdom of God. His mission was to reclaim the very authority that the devil was offering him. But what, what the devil did was offered him a shortcut, an easier way to get there. If you will just worship me, I'll give it all to you. Now, we understand that that promise would have had huge strings attached. Again, Jesus quotes out of Deuteronomy, this time in chapter 6, where he, he says that it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus stands firm in his calling, even though he's in this weakened state. He knows why he's here and he knows what he's called to. And then finally, the devil comes against them. And again, he says, if you are the son of God, if, that's a big if. Remember just a few verses earlier and in just a you know, few days earlier, 40 days earlier in the life of Jesus, he had heard those words from heaven. This is my son. And here Satan calls that into question. If you are the son of God, he says that if you throw yourself down, that these angels will come and they will rescue you. And Jesus responds again out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 16, where he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus, now filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, goes into this place where he is weakened physically. And he stands against the enemy of his soul, who offers him all of these things. And in his physically weakened state, Jesus takes his stand. So here, here's what we know. That God gives Jesus and us the power to stand. When we talk about power, what is power supposed to be for? Well, how do we see power working in our lives? It is the power to stand. 
Not the power to rule, not the power to gain, not the power to control. It's the power to take our stand. Because in the same way that the devil came against Jesus, that he comes against us. That he wants to lie to us and he wants to offer us shortcuts and ways that we can circumvent the plans of God in our lives. And I, I got to tell you, those, those, those opportunities, those temptations seem very appealing. God says, I'm giving you power to take your stand. Take a stand in the word of God. Jesus stands his ground. He's physically weary and hungry. But in the moment of weakness, the Spirit of God gives him the power to stand. And again, notice that it's rooted in Scripture. It's rooted in the Word of God that Jesus doesn't respond with his opinion. He responds out of the Word of God. Spirit-empowered, that those verses, that those passages are brought to his remembrance in that moment so he can take his stand. I'll tell you today, you may be feeling weary. You may be feeling tired. You may be feeling worn out. You may even be hungry. Maybe not physically hungry, though certainly some of you may be. But maybe spiritually hungry, emotionally hungry, relationally hungry, that there's something inside of you that needs to be satisfied. Your flesh may be weak, but I want to tell you today that the same spirit that gave Jesus the power to stand is saying to you, I will give you my power so that you can stand in the midst of the onslaught of the enemy. Those places where, uh, those places where the enemy will challenge you, he will challenge your trust in God. Well, does God even care about you? Will he provide for your most basic needs? Will he give you bread? to eat. And you can take your stand and and say this, I trust God to provide, to meet my most basic needs. I put my trust in God and in him alone. That the enemy will come against you and try and challenge your calling and your purpose, the reason why you were born. The Bible tells us that, that God knows why you were born. He not only knows your name, he knows the reason he had you born in the place you were born, in the family you were born, in the time that you were born, that he has a purpose for your life, that you are called by God. And the enemy wants to discourage you and tell you that's not true. But the Spirit of God will give you the power to stand in your calling. And then the, 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 the enemy will do this. He will try to come against your identity. He'll try to address the issue of identity in your life. If you are a child of God. If you are. If you're a child of God, how is it that you're in so much pain? How is it that the world is such a mess? Why are things seemingly falling apart? If you're a child of God, you should be able to to, to just put yourself in the hands of God and everything will be okay. And so the invitation there, just as it was for Jesus, is to begin to worship the, the things of this world. That when we put our trust, when we put our calling, and we put our identity in the structures and the systems of this world, essentially what we begin to do is idolize those things and worship them in the place of God. But the Spirit of God will give us the ability to stand 
He will give us the power to stand and say, my identity, my calling, and my trust is in God alone. You have the power to stand. Not to walk in fear, not to be out of control. But I've got to tell you that this, this kind of power, the power to stand requires surrender. It requires an absolute surrender before the Lord. Let's keep going. I want to look at what happens next in our text. So Luke chapter 4 now, picking it up in verse 14, says this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Then he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Notice a couple of things. If we can go back to the, the beginning, a couple of verses in, in verse 1. It says this, that he goes into the synagogue. Well, first of all, he's going throughout the, the region in the power of the Spirit. He's now come out of the season where he's being challenged and, he's, and the enemy is coming against him. And now he is moving in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he's going around the countryside, that people were hearing about what he was doing in his ministry, and, and everyone praised him. But then he goes back to his hometown, back to the place where he was raised, back to the place that was most familiar for him. The neighbors, the friends, the people he grew up with, his, his parents, friends, and of course, his church, his synagogue. In Nazareth, there would have been one synagogue, one place where the whole community would come. And the way the synagogue was set up, rather than like we have ch uh, church today where we have rows and all face the same direction, it was set up in the round where people would sit on, on uh, kind of shelves, if you will, and, and they were kind of stadium seating around the, the central area. And anyone could get up and read from the word of God. And so Jesus gets up to read, and notice that the scroll is handed to him. He didn't go and select the scroll. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And then he begins to read and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. To do what? To proclaim the good news to the poor. He goes on to say, To proclaim freedom to the prisoner, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free, and then he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a bold thing that Jesus does, especially when he then sits down, hands the scroll back, and he sits down, and he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your presence. Today 
the scripture is fulfilled. I want to talk a little bit about what Jesus reads out of Isaiah 61 here. It says that the spirit of the Lord is on me. And this is Isaiah, of course, prophesying about Jesus. That the spirit of the Lord is on me to do what? To proclaim good news, to proclaim freedom, to recover the sight, and to set the oppressed free. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know, when we think about the power of the Spirit moving in the life of Jesus, we tend to default to and think about uh, the miraculous, the raising of the dead. And of course, he references it here, but the, 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 sight, the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, walking on water, all of these things when Jesus speaks to the storm. And we think, well, that's, that's the power of God displayed in the life of Jesus. And certainly, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of power gave him the ability to do those things. It was God's Spirit moving in his midst. But we've got to realize something that when Jesus goes down the list and references the poor and the prisoner and the blind and the oppressed, what he does is he targets the most marginalized, the fringe of the society, those who were on the edges, not those who were at the center. And I want to talk for a second about the year of the Lord's favor. Why is this significant? Why does Jesus reference it? Well, Every 50 years was a year of jubilee. It was the year of the Lord's favor. And after Israel had came out of Egypt, uh, the Lord established in Deuteronomy and in the law, in the Torah, uh, a, a rhythm for the people of Israel. A rhythm that would rem- remind them to rest. Of course, we know that Sabbath, that the seventh day is the Sabbath. But the seventh year was known as the Sabbath Year And it was in the Sabbath year that a couple of things happened. In the Sabbath year, all of the land was left uh, unfarmed. They would do no farming. They would leave the, the land to rest in the seventh year. Farmers still do that. It's a practice uh, called leaving a land fallow. You leave a field uh, just to, to let the soil recuperate so that it will continue to produce crops. The other thing that happened every seven years is that all of everyone's debt was forgiven. Everyone's debt would be forgiven every seven years. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if every seven years, whatever debt you had is just wiped clean uh, and, and you get a fresh start? And this is something that God instituted. The 50th year, though, was seven Sabbath years. So 49 years would pass. There would be seven Sabbath years in that, in, that, uh, in that time, seven times seven. And so that last year, that 50th year would be the year of Jubilee. And here's what would happen. If you owned a parcel of land, whoever the original owner of that land was when the Israelites came into the, the, into the promised land, that land would no longer be yours. It would be restored back to the original owner and to their family. And it was the way that the Lord kind of kept an even playing ground for the people. In fact, in the Old Testament, what we see is God's biggest indictments against the Israelites were two things. First of all, their failure to worship and obey him. And then secondly, their failure to care for each other. God's declaration over Israel is that there would be no poor in Israel. Yet he knows that the heart of man is sinful and that the abuse of power 
was rampant then as it is now. And so he had to put things in place that would care for those who were marginalized. And so that's what Jesus is referencing here in the year of Jubilee. So Jesus, in addressing his home community, his friends, his family, the, the people he's grown up in, you know, grown up around rather, speaks to his mission, to his calling, and he says, I've come to serve the least. I've come to use my power not to make those who have and those who are rich and those who are established to just deliver them from the hand of the Romans. I've come to reach those who are, are at the least, the most disadvantaged. Now, of course, we understand that, God, that the ultimate mission of Jesus here is the salvation of our souls and that he would go to Calvary and give his life. But it's not just that. It's the exercise of his power to care for the people of the land, to bring safety and deliverance to them. His desire is to bring glory to God and then to minister to the people. In fact, that's what the, the goal of the miracles were. Jesus talked about that, that there would be a sign that people would worship God. And then, of course, if you were blind and Jesus healed your eyes, would you not be grateful? Does that not express the care and the love of God? If you were that one of those that were sitting on the hillside hungry, and Jesus sees you and he has compassion and he takes those fish and that that, those loaves of bread and multiplies them. And by the end of the afternoon, you've eaten as much as you can. Wouldn't you feel the love and the compassion of God over your life? This is the power of God. So here what we have is this. Jesus did not come with the power to wow. Jesus didn't come with power to make a name for himself. Jesus came with power to serve. He came with power to serve, that his power was intended to serve the least of these. Again, he references the most negatively affected by the power structures of the world. Listen to me. In, in, in that moment, in that synagogue, he references the people who would have been most negatively affected by the power structures of the world, the poor, the prisoners, the disabled, and the oppressed. See, this is not the Messiah they were expecting. All of Israel was waiting for a Messiah that would come and just deliver them out of the hands of the Romans and make their lives easier. But the goal of Jesus was not to make their lives easier. The goal of his life was to bring freedom. The irony is this, that even those people sitting in that room didn't realize how oppressed they were how in bondage they were, how blind they were, spiritually blind they were, that Jesus came to not just deliver them from the oppression of those uh, that, that were in authority over them, he came to deliver them from the oppression of the evil one, of Satan himself. Jesus goes on right after this to speak, and I won't read the rest of the passage. I'll just give you the, 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 the overview and he begins to speak, and, and they're all in awe. It says at the end of that passage in verse 21 that they were just waiting with bated breath to hear what he would say next. And he goes on to, to talk about two stories out of the life of Elijah. 
The story of when he was fed miraculously by going to the widow's home, Zarephath was her name, and she was a Sidonian woman. And then Naaman, a Syrian, who had leprosy and was healed by God. And in talking about these two, two Gentiles, Jesus makes a statement and he says that I have come, that this prophecy is fulfilled, and it's not just for the Jewish people, it's for the Gentiles as well. This is not, again, what they were expecting. In fact, in doing so, he calls out their abuse of power, not just them, but the whole nation and the history of their nation. And here's what their response is. This is, this is mind-blowing. These are Jesus' people. This is his community. These are the people that saw him grow up, probably held him when he was little, maybe babysat him when Joseph and Mary went out on a date night. Right? This is, this is the people, these are the people that he played with when he was a child. Their response to his statement in this moment is such anger and such vitriol that they drag him out of the synagogue and out of Nazareth and they take him to a place on the edge of a mountain, a cliff. In fact, scholars believe that that place is called Mount Precipice, and you can go there today. It's this mountain overlooking this incredible valley. This is right on the outskirts of Nazareth. They would have brought him to this place, and as tradition would have it, they would have thrown him off the cliff and then rolled boulders down the hill on top of him. This is the nerve that Jesus touched in that community. Now, the Bible says that what he did is he essentially, he turned around and he walked through the crowd and no one was able to lay a hand on him. And he went from that place, never, really never to return. He goes to Capernaum by Galilee and there he establishes his ministry and that becomes his new home. So here in the place where Jesus should have been welcomed with open arms, he's rejected. And he stands in this power to serve because Jesus came with the power to serve, not to rule. He didn't come with the power to rule, at least not in this world. He didn't come with the power to overthrow. And because he didn't meet their needs, because he didn't address the thing they thought was most important, they turn on him. Jesus came with a power to serve. He came with a power to lay his life down. This is the power of the Spirit of God at work in the life of Jesus. Maybe in your life, you've seen places where you desire to serve and maybe there's been opposition against you to do the right thing and you're called out and told, no, that's not the right thing to do. That's not the right way to go. That's not the, how we do things. Maybe within the church, I know I've experienced it, even recently, if I'm honest, that I believe that God's called us as the body of Christ, that he's called me as a pastor to serve and even to serve the weakest, the marginalized, the least of these in whatever form that would take on. And if I'm completely honest for just a minute, what I see so much in the church right now is people exercising their power as the bride of Christ to serve their own needs. That's not the power that God's called us to walk in. He's called us to have power to serve. He's called us to have power to serve. And as we serve, we can take our stand. Both of those things are true.
I want to close with a passage out of John chapter 14. John writes this. Of course, these are the words of Jesus. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is one of those passages that I believe is definitely taken out of context and most certainly is abused and misunderstood. That when Jesus says that if you believe in me, you will not only do the works that I've done, you will do greater things. So often what we think about is the miracle. I've heard people all throughout my life saying, well, Jesus raised people from the dead, so I should be able to raise, raise people from the dead. What we miss in that is it wasn't raising someone from the dead wasn't the point. Bringing glory to God and blessing the person, seeing and having compassion on the person, that's the point. And I believe so much of why we don't see those miraculous signs happening is our focus is in the wrong place, that God has not called us to move in power for our own sake, to bring glory to ourselves. God says, I've given you power to stand, to stand before God, to stand in the midst of opposition, to stand in the midst of a world that will tell you every other way is the way to go. There's an easier way to do things. There's a shortcut in being able to get there. Trying to define what our identity is, and God says, I will give you the ability to stand, to stand in your calling, to stand in your identity, to stand in trust of who he is and humble yourself before him. And then he gives us the power to serve. That when we can do those two things, when we can stand, stand in that power and serve in that power, then I believe we will see that, that the miraculous taking place. But at the end of the day, that's not the goal. The goal is glorify God and serve and care for people. This is the example Jesus sets for us. Church, this is the way we're called to walk in power. Now, I want to say this. I have barely scratched the surface on this subject. When it comes to talking about power and the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the, the Spirit at work in our lives, there, there are not enough Sundays to have that conversation. And so know this. This is just scratching the surface. But I want us to, to get a clear look at how did power play out in the life of Jesus? the power to stand, and the power to serve. Let's follow his example. Let's do the works that he did by taking our stand and serving people well. Jesus, I ask that you would empower us, that you would cause us to be a people who stand for what is true and what is right. God, that we would stand in our our identity and in our calling and that we would stand in our trust for you no matter the opposition that the world would bring, that the enemy would bring against us. And God, that I, pr- I pray that we would be a people who are empowered to serve, to serve you with everything we have. And in the midst of serving you, Lord, that we would see the least of these, those, Lord, who are most affected even by the power structures of this world that we would care for each other and have compassion for each other, Jesus, the way that you did. 
even, Lord, if it's not popular with the people around us, even if they reject us, Lord, that we would have the stand in the power to serve the way that you've called us to serve. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you, if you heard this message today, or you're listening to this service, and you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity to make that decision today, the most important decision you would ever make, that Jesus came in this power we've been talking about to seek and save the lost, to seek and save those who were lost in their sin, weary and tired, and maybe that describes where you're at today, and I want to tell you, you can have a thriving relationship with Jesus. I want to invite you, if that's you, would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Jesus, I invite you to be my Lord and my Savior. Lord, I put my trust in you. I ask you to forgive me of my sin, and I repent for the things, Lord, that I've done wrong. I commit to serve you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, would you do me a favor? Would you either click the, con- uh, the link above that says connect card and let us know by filling out one of those cards or send us an email at prayer at thriveglendora.org and we'd love the opportunity to follow up with you and help you take the next steps in this journey with Jesus. Church, I love you. We miss you. Uh, we've got a special treat for you next Sunday, so encourage you, invite someone to be a part of church with you. Look forward to seeing you then. Have a great day.